right. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of the Gap and Wrap Biosimilars podcast series. I'm your host, Gabriella McCarty. I'm a nurse practitioner at North Shore Gastroenterology, which is a large private practice in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. And I've actually been there for 24 years. I do general GI, IBD, and hepatology, so a little of everything. And today we'll be kicking off our biosimilars podcast series by talking about what exactly biosimilars are. So joining me is Jennifer Jeremia, and she's a physician assistant in GI for the past 12 years, but the past three years at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston. And she does general GI and does some support for advanced endoscopy. So welcome, Jennifer. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. Thank you, Gabriella. I'm so glad to be here today to start off this podcast for this group. And uh, hopefully there'll be some uh, great dialogue and great information exchange for other APPs to learn from us today. All right. So our very first episode seeks to answer a basic question, but it is a very important one to kind of build a foundation for our podcast series. And that question is, what are biosimilars? And I'm sure that you've heard about these and you get asked that uh, often. And this is a major change that we'll be seeing in practice soon if you haven't already. So all in all, uh, there are actually 10 biosimilars expected for adalimumab alone in 2023, which was very surprising. So Jennifer, can you help us get this started on defining what biologic therapy is? Absolutely. So I think some of us that have been in practice now for a bit have probably heard of the first uh, biosimilars that came to market specifically for infliximab and inflammatory bowel disease to replace uh, some of the existing biologic therapies. And having prescribed them uh, in practice over the years, I'll be honest, I was a little bit apprehensive when this exchange uh, further happened as far as what that implication was going to mean for our patients. But it actually has been a fairly seamless transition. And we'll, we'll look at some of those dynamics um, shortly. But basically, biologic therapies uh, came out specifically by the National Cancer Institute uh, as far as therapies that are used from living organisms to treat disease. So it can be primarily autoimmune disease within the context of rheumatology or gastroenterology. And those living organisms can be plant-based, it can be mammalian, like human or rat. Uh, so anything that has live cells that replicate uh, these occur naturally in the body, and then are reproducible in a laboratory setting. These uh, therapies stimulate or suppress the immune system, again, in GI or rheumatology for our purposes here. And these pathways work through different mechanisms, as we're most familiar with TNFs or other downstream cytokine proteins, such as interleukin-6, 17, 12, or 12-23. And then there are also some that directly target B-cell or T-cell formation in that inflammatory cascade. All right. So what I'm hearing is the hallmark of a biologic therapy is that it's derived from living organisms. 
That is correct. So basically wherever, so for example, infliximab was derived specifically from rat cells, but yes, they are, hence the, the term, they are living, breathing biologic cells, so to speak, that we are replicating uh, what we are naturally making. Wow, that sounds incredibly complicated, but I'm looking forward to learning a bit more about that process. So now that we've talked about biologic therapies, can you take it one step further and help us by providing a definition for biosimilars? Sure. So the arguably the production or manufacturing process of a biologic, basically you're taking a DNA sequence into those living cells to modify an outcome. So either a suppression of a certain protein, or perhaps stimulating a certain protein, depending on which cascade and, and the use of that. And so when we look specifically at biosimilars, these are products that were approved by demonstrating significant similarity to the original biologic. So that is frequently referred to as the reference product. So it is not a de novo molecule. It's not a brand new drug. And the burden is on the manufacturer, the producer of that biosimilar to prove high affinity and, and similarity to that reference drug. And we're looking at things such as mechanism of action, efficacy, and safety relative to that reference product. And really, there's only minor differences in the clinical inactive components that are allowable to be different in the biosimilar product. So therefore, there's really no translation and clinically meaningful difference on safety and efficacy between a biosimilar and then the reference product or the original biologic product. Okay, I see. So because biologics are complex molecules, it's not possible to make an exact copy of the original product. Therefore, biosimilars are developed to provide similar attributes to a standard product? Yes, exactly correct. Okay. So what I, was I using the correct terminology when I said standard product or original product? I may feel like I might be off there. So it's frequently referred to as the reference product. And so when these things go in front of the FDA, it's referred to as the reference product. So that's the original approved biologic medication that was already authorized both for marketing purposes and used as the, the standard comparator for the biosimilar. So that is the cornerstone or pivotal product that first came to market and everything has to then be compared against that original reference product. And the, again, the biosimilar is replicating that particular benchmark product to show that we are similar as far as efficacy, safety, manufacturing and quality of that product. Okay, got it. So now that so, we've got it, oh, go ahead. Sorry, um, just a, a little bit more detail there. It's also sometimes known as the innovator biologic that was originally approved by our governing bodies, again, such as the FDA, based on their clinical trials and their supporting data. It's important to note that the reference product has to go through a much longer 
process from the original uh, inception of the product through then clinical trials, which is fairly standard to the FDA, in from development till it gets to market. So when we think about biosimilars, they don't have to go through that entire compendium of time. So the interval is shorter, but they do have to prove that they are safe and effective to use in patients for the same therapeutic effect as the original reference products. All right. So I'm so glad I asked that. So I feel like now we have a good foundation uh, defining biologic therapy, biosimilars, and reference product. Uh, Can you talk about the approval process and how that was developed? Sure. So certainly going in front of the FDA is a complex and fairly rigorous, uh, both expensive and time-consuming products. And so when the Affordable Care Act, which probably not many people know, had a component to address the cost challenges that arise with biologics, and this was referred to as the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act. And basically, this was to expedite or abbreviate the approval process for biosimilars so that it's not as long and laborious as the reference product, but does its due diligence with extensive testing and analytics to establish a comprehensive understanding. And again, the burden that that biosimilar meets the similarity to the reference product. And so the Biolog Price Competition Act and Innovation Act was meant for both an approval pathway to speed things up, but also to help with cost. Okay. So can you tell us a little bit more about the impact of the Biologic Price Competition and Innovation Act on this approval of biosimilars? Sure. So by setting this up, it allowed, um, again, a shorter interval because it's not as a rigorous approval process. And because of that, because that process is not as laborious and you're not starting with a brand new molecule or a brand new drug that has to bear the burden of the reference product, they inherently do not incur as much in terms of cost to bring the product to market. And therefore that then translates into a reduction of cost to our payers and ultimately our patients. And so this This allows for better access to patients that may have high deductibles, that may have to share a brunt of the cost of therapy, so that expedited pathway leads to less cost to the produce to the manufacturer, which then translates in less cost to payer and patient, which hopefully expedites also how quickly we can get patients on therapy. All right, got it. So the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act helps set up a way for biosimilars, and they have benefits, which we will discuss in future episodes, um, and eventually, you know, we'll be utilizing them to treat our patients. Yes, there were also some additional aspects to this uh, piece of the Affordable Care Act as well, uh, specifically for biosimilars. Okay, so what else did it do? So this was a, you know, we know the Affordable Care Act was a pretty meaty and loaded uh, type of legislation. And so some additional provisions uh, with this particular aspect of the act established a regulatory pathway for the uh, 
biologics or the biosimilar, uh, but it also defined what a biosimilar is. And so again, that's a biologic product with high similarity to the original reference product with no clinically meaningful difference in terms of safety, purity, and potency. So that is how the legislation reads as far as what the definition of a biosimilar is. So not to be confused with a generic. So when we are presenting this to our patients, most especially, just so we have a good understanding of the difference in terms. This also allowed for an exchange of information between the manufacturers or applicants for the biosimilars and the manufacturer or producer of the original reference product or what's referred to as the reference product sponsor. And so this exchange of information allows the reference product sponsor to know what the company or manufacturer of the biosimilar is doing from manufacturing and they are engaged in that process and that exchange is known as the patent dance. So one, to make sure that that biosimilar is meeting the burden of being a biosimilar as far as those benchmarks that we already described, but also that the manufacturing process is appropriate and to keep these biologic cells stable because of course they are living cells. So they need uh, an appropriate process uh, for stability and also make sure that there's no deviation, uh, but no infringement on the original patent from the reference product manufacturer. The other thing is it provided basically market exclusivity for the reference product, which allows that manufacturer of the original product where a, there's no biosimilar that can be approved for the same indication for a period of time. And again, that's different than sort of patent laws versus this concept of ex exclusivity. Okay, so why would they do that? Well, given that going from your original discovery of a certain molecule that may be uh, intended to treat in a certain pathway, all the way through phase three trial, getting ready to go to the FDA and come to market, as we've already discussed, is very laborious and very expensive. So basically, this keeps the pipelines going and incentivizes the companies to know that their innovation is going to be theirs for a certain period of time without any infringement. And so it was aimed to provide this incentive um, for continued innovation and development of new products, both at the institutional university, medical school level, straight through to uh, the manufacturing pharmaceutical companies. And so this basically awards the original reference brand manufacturer 12 years of exclusivity from the original approval date. So there are some differences between a patent and this concept of exclusivity. Basically, a patent is issued at the time uh, when they file, right? So if the company has identified this molecule or this pathway, and they feel like this is something really revolutionary that they're going to continue to work on, but they're not ready to go to FDA anytime soon, they may file a patent because there may be someone else that's also will later identify this. So now they, they have the patent. However, patents will expire 
uh, and that may not necessarily completely align with the FDA approval timeline. And so that potentially has some risk of ex exploitation by other companies because if the patent expires, then someone else can sort of run with it. They can infringe on that, take that data and, and or information regarding that molecule and run with it. When it comes to the concept of the exclusivity, it is from when the product is approved. So this is both marketing exclusivity, that they're the only ones that can market and sell this product, but they also are going to retain their data that was presented to the FDA so that no one else can use that data to come up with another product. So it really just helps to keep continued innovation uh, by essentially awarding the original reference product company. All right. So that seems to make a lot of sense. Is there anything else that we need to touch on there, Jennifer? Sure. On that sort of same note of the legalities of uh, patents and exclusivity, this was also meant to create a process that would help with any potential litigation issues that can ar arise from patent infringements. And that's why they wanted to create Earlier, we discussed the patent dance, this concept between the two manufacturers exchanging information so that it's very transparent and we know what reference company versus biosimilar company is doing so that there is less red tape, so to speak, and less delay in bringing the product to market because of uh, legalities or legis uh, litigation that may arise from that. And so with this informational exchange uh, should hope to then allow for quicker resolution of valid or invalid infringements uh, that may be filed against uh, the patent. And at the end of the process, the different concerns or infringements that are identified are reviewed and then adjudicated uh, so that you're not finding all of this out later on because of lack of transparency. And now you're going back, which is further delaying the process, which defeats the purpose of the original acts. All right. Wow. Thanks for that in-depth explanation. That was a ton of great information. So it feels like it borders on law. Maybe it does, but I think it's important for our APPs to have a background in understanding the process that goes behind uh, biosimilars and how they get approved. So part of this is certainly why the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act was developed and it dictates and how it dictates things. So I think we've got a pretty good foundation from this conversation, and I love the points that you've made so far, Jennifer. Um, I'd like to change gears just a bit and focus on some of the practical aspects and take-home messages from today's topics. So that being said, I'm going to um, ask a few questions, and then we can talk about what this means in our day-to-day -day, uh, practice. So... At this point, do you have a well-practiced way that you go about defining biosimilars? How do you Sure, and them? I absolutely. So I think it's uh, also to how you define this with patients versus 
uh, amongst our APP and medical provider community. So we've already discussed sort of the definition by uh, a legal FDA standard. But how do we then also have that discussion with our patients? And it is a, a point of concern for them, especially when this first started with infliximab, because it was perceived as, you know, I'm getting a different drug and I'm stable and am I going to suddenly flare? Uh, and so, again, all of a valid concern. And I think we don't want to reflexively use the nomenclature of the word generic, uh, because again, a generic is not the same as a uh, as a biosimilar by it, the way that they are originated and produced. So basically, I tell patients that these on a molecular level are identical, that there are inactive ingredients that may vary, but the actual molecular composition and how this product is produced, the cells that they are derived from are identical to what they may have already been on or to the original product. And they are highly similar, not just on a scientific molecular level, but in how they're going to treat the disease, the safety profile, and their um, efficacy. And there's really only minor differences in inactive components. So I really sort of stress the fact that these are molecularly identical and manufacturer wise identical. Got it. So important to, you know, tell that to patients as well as other APPs who maybe are not so familiar with the biosimilars. I usually also say that it's interchangeable um, with the brand name. And there's no difference in how we're going to monitor you. There's really no difference in the dosing either. Um, Absolutely. So we, no, that's a yeah. great point. Because most of the biosimilar companies as well have that interchange interchangeability um, data. Now, not all of them seek out that label. That is actually an added burden on the biosimilar company to seek out the label of being interchangeable, which most of them are seeking that out. But we do have objective data. So we as clinicians have reassurance and then can you know, share that with our patients that, hey, you know, we have studies that look at going from products reference product to the biosimilar and back. Uh, so known as switch data, and there was no new safety concerns or changes in efficacy. When you look at a lot of those uh, plots on graphs, they're practically sitting right one on top of each other. So we do have the objective uh, data to support that interchangeability. Yes, that's a great point. Um, so the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act, we spent a lot of time talking about that. It clearly had a major impact on our landscape. So I'm guessing you don't talk about the act specifically with patients, but is there anything or any concepts that tend to land in your conversations when biosimilars come up? Sure. Uh, certainly. And again, I think this tends to come up more on patients that are well established on their particular therapy. And now we have to make that change. And depending on the state you practice in or the institution, sometimes that is a transparent process where they will say, we are switching from reference product to this biosimilar, and they have to let you know that. Uh, not all states and or institutions or infusion companies, etc. have 
bear that burden of having to be transparent, although it certainly would be appreciated. And when it first happened to me, I was a little bit upset about it, um, personally, because I feel like that transparency is important. So sometimes, so I don't reference the act by name, but I sort of just build in some concepts when we're discussing this. So, um, you know, I talk about the concept of interchangeability, like you pointed out, switch data, that really this was intended to be able to provide more broad access at a quicker rate for cheaper cost to the patient, ultimately, so that they can stay on their drug for as long as they need it without hopefully as much in the way of financial hurdles. Um, the other piece here is, um, you know, I think when they're naive to this particular drug and you're starting them on a biosimilar, I don't even know that it necessarily comes up, at least personally in conversation, unless the patient has researched it. Uh, then I usually just refer to the reference product by their generic name, uh, more so than the brand name. And it, it doesn't seem to be as much of a, of a conversation starter in that setting. But I also stress to patients that uh, it's not a true generic because the pathway to get to generic manufacturing is a different process just by the science of synthesizing a small molecule and how you can basically completely mimic that process in a generic versus the biosimilars where because these are you know live cellular organisms that are reproducing that it is even though they're molecularly identical by the inherent nature of the production process does not meet the burden of being a generic. So I do sort of clarify that there's a difference between a generic and a biosimilar, but our intent is to make this as accessible as quickly as possible at the cheapest possible cost to you. Yes, those are great points. Yeah, I was going to say that cost is the number one thing that comes up with us too. Um, and it always seems like this comes about when patients insurances are being are changing or being updated, you know, beginning of the year, transparency, like you mentioned, is so important. Um, and now that we have so many biosimilars that are out and coming out, I think, yeah, once you start the patient on a biosimilar, you know, it's not going to become an issue that conversation really won't come up. So that being said, um, we're going to ask every guest on the series this question because we think it's important and want to get a lot of different perspectives from GI and rheumatology APPs. What is the most frequent question you get from patients about biosimilars and how do you answer it? Sure. I think hands down is they're always afraid they're going to flare, which is a completely valid concern on the patient's part. And that's why I think transparency is so important because assuming we know, again, there may be less transparency state to state or institution to institution. But if I have enough knowledge ahead of time, I will tell the patient that this is going to happen to provide them some reassurance and explain the concepts that we've already discussed. I have early on when, uh, uh, again, infliximab came out with biosimilars, patients told me, they said, oh, hey, you know, I went for my infusion and they told me that I was getting products blank and it wasn't my original 
drug. Uh, so I had to sort of do a little bit of backpedaling. So I when I know most especially, I just reassure them that this is the going to work the same, that we are not anticipating any differences in terms of efficacy and safety. I think another concept that maybe not be as particular to the patient, but us as providers that I had a concern about, which again, we we don't see any of these signals, is the concept of is going from one product to the other going to cause drug neutralizing antibodies that then render the product ineffective, which I don't know how much conceptually in room this is a concern. I know in GI, you know, we repeatedly check drug antibody levels and, and troughs, and that is a routine part of our practice. And so that was a concern. But again, that is not objectively happening. We are not seeing from that because of that interchangeability that there is any increased risk of drug antibody formation or lack of trough levels. Uh, going from reference product to the biosimilar. So I just reassure them it'll work as well. We It really should be no different. Like you should go in there and it should be your completely usual experience and almost forget that it's something different and it'll we're just going to continue to stay the course because I think when patients don't know and then are surprised, they get a little bit more panicked about it and start worrying and it just creates undue stress to them. So I just think reassurance that we have the data, the safety and uh, a well, you know, transparent process that this is going to work for you equally as well as what you were using. Yes, those are all great points. And I would say, yeah, that's exactly the number one um, question that comes up is, will I flare and will I develop side effects? That's another one. Um, because you will have those patients that swear, you know, they yes. don't feel as good on sure. this biosimilar, or now they feel like they're getting joint pains, or they develop a little rash. And um you know, whether so much of that is true or not, I think if patients have been on one certain therapy, it's, of, of course, there are some that just, they want to stay on that one, they've been doing good, they really don't want to change. Um, so it comes down to, you know, like insurance and cost. And, and there are patients, honestly, that we've, you know, switched over. And a few months later, we're putting them back on sure the original one. So sure. And I think that's going to happen with anything. Mm -hmm. I agree. I mean, I think that us as clinicians, right? So whatever may be sort of underlying their symptomatology that they're presenting with, you know, and we do our due diligence and make sure that, you know, everything is uh, optimized as far as trough levels. And, you know, we've, we've checked all of those things as to, well, you know, perhaps why are they not responding? And if it's felt that, okay, we are going to go back to reference product, what we can take is some confidence in that the fact that these things are interchangeable. And so, okay, we should be able then to go back to reference product, assuming that we don't have any hiccups on the payer side and the access side, that they should go back to baseline. And so we should have some confidence in that. Yeah, that's perfect. Well, I guess that's all the time that we have for today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer, and sharing your experience on biosimilars. 
Well, thanks for helping kick off our Gap and Wrap podcast series on biosimilars. Well, thank you so much, Gabriella. It was great to be with you today. And it's exciting to have this new platform that we can share across the GI or rheumatology space regarding biosimilars and continue to learn uh, through this program moving forward. Till next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gap and Wrap Biosimilars podcast series. I'd also like to say thank you to Pfizer and Amgen. Without their continued support of APP education, this podcast would not be possible. So please see our show notes for highlights from this episode and fill out our evaluations so that we can receive feedback and make sure that you join us next time as we discuss the development of biosimilars. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, take care. 